Welcome to Clinical Research Confidential. On this show, we highlight and demystify the inner workings of this greatly misunderstood activity called clinical research. Now, why is clinical research important? Well, it's the basis for nearly every modern remedy for sickness and a growing method to build trust and solutions meant to optimize health. But it's not for the faint of heart. And so on this show, you'll hear what it really takes to succeed in the clinical research game. I'm your host, Joseph Kim, and I've spent over 23 years in the clinical research industry, now serving as the Chief Strategy Officer for Proof Pilot. Get ready for some adventures as we look into the underbelly of clinical research. So I'm pleased to have with us today the, the one and only Sam Whitaker. Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. So Sam, I have you on this show because not because you're a researcher per se, uh, or you're not you don't work for you know a clinic or a drug company, but you're one of these rare breeds of individuals that come into this research ecosystem, and that is a the tech startup. And there's a lot of investment happening certainly now, but when you started your company, which we'll talk about, it was certainly less. And I think breaking into the pharma research space wasn't all that easy. And so what I'd love to talk to you about a little bit today is, you know, the struggles about doing that, breaking into an industry with a solution that, you know, is highly regulated, very insular, very traditional, so on and so forth. So let's start with your background, right? You don't even come from research. What did you do after, what did you study in university and like, what was your first career? Yeah, uh, so that's it's a almost uh, embarrassing story. I studied uh, philosophy. That's like the funniest part of the, the story. <laughs> I studied philosophy at Penn. When I went 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 to school, I I wanted to go to medical school, and I did some work at uh, at the hospital at Penn throughout college. Eventually, I ended up giving up on that that dream of going to medical school, mostly as a function of some uh, let's say uh, in like uh, b- below standard grades. I spent probably too much time having fun in college and not enough hitting the books. So in any event, my, my fallback, I ended up becoming an investment banking analyst uh, out of out of college, and uh, you know traveled traveled through that world for a while and and, and realized that it, it probably didn't suit my personality all that well. And then ended up working at a startup outside of Philadelphia uh, that was a payments startup, a fintech startup, which is. Um, Ultimately, where I came up with the idea of of uh, developing a a tech that would help pharma companies make payments to patients who are participating in clinical trials, and that was a combination of um, experience I had in uh, eCount, which was the the startup in Philadelphia, and my uh, my work at the hospital at Penn while I was a while I was a student. Got it. So, I mean, you know, medicine and healthcare had been on your mind. Eh, you didn't have the grades at the time, but there is a funny story you've told me before, which is like, how does a philosophy major get into investment banking? How did you end up landing that job? <laughs> you know, I think when I when I decided to study philosophy, I did it because it was just something that I I enjoyed. Like I I, I liked you know kind of flexing my brain in 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 the ways that you do when you're when you're thinking about you know kind of abstract you know, problems. And at the time that I made that decision, all was good with the world and everybody was getting, I had a friend who was a folklore major who, who ended up going to work at Goldman Sachs when he graduated. And so I, you know, I used him as a point of reference. I was 19 at the time that I made this decision. And I, I thought, well, if folklore majors are getting jobs, then 
surely philosophy majors will. <laughs> so it seemed like a sound decision. In the end, you know, I graduated in 2002. So this was the, you know, kind of the graduating class that happened after 9-11. And the world had changed uh, kind of overnight uh, as a result of, uh, of 9-11. And philosophy majors were not getting jobs like they were uh, maybe two years prior. And so um, it was hard. Uh, I, I didn't get a job right away. Um, and I ended up, you know, essentially cold calling senior bankers throughout the the world to see if I could get anybody to pay attention to me. And finally, I I, I got somebody to return a phone call, and and one thing led to another, and, and I got a job. But it was a very atypical kind of non traditional way of getting getting a, a kind of an entry level job in, in investment banking. Yeah. Well, I think it foreshadows a lot about you as an entrepreneur, which is a lot of grit and matching professionals, not with necessarily their experience, but their attitudes, right? So we'll touch on that, I think, as we as we hear about your, the, the growth of your, your first company in clinical research. So it's no surprise you were the founder of Greenfire, which is a, a, a leading payment provider in, this, in, in clinical research. And I remember meeting you, I don't know if it was weeks, months after you had started the company. Uh, I was at, working at a company called uh, ePharma Solutions in Kanchahakan, and you guys were in King of Prussia. Tell us, how you made the jump from your other fintech startup to doing something like this in clinical research, which is its own weird, you know, business and uh, ecosystem of players. So, um, you know, I think that the way that the story went, what actually happened was we we actually had decided we meaning actually, I guess it was just me at first, but I decided that I was going to start a company. I, I decided that I didn't want to work for somebody else. And I wanted to, you know, I saw the success that the team at eCount had had uh, over the years. Um, and I'd also seen the success that other entrepreneurs had had uh, while I was in investment banking. And, and then I worked for this kind of kind of funky private equity uh, firm for, for about two years. That, and they were in, at the private equity firm, we were buying lower middle market manufacturing businesses. And so there were, there were these, uh, these people that would start these companies and grow them over time and then, you know, sell them in the end. And so I decided I was going to start a company. You know, I knew I knew something about payment technology. And then it was really mo- mostly I had I had a bit of a thesis that I wanted to do something that did something more than just move money from like point A to point B. And I and I wanted to build a software that would that would uh in, increase the value uh, of the tech beyond just moving money. And I needed to find an industry. So so the way I was like describing it back then was, you know, a payments company that was designed specific for a single industry. And and t- in today's kind of terms, uh, people would call that a vertically integrated payments business. So this was before there was such a thing as vertically integrated payments businesses and this was this was the idea. And so then I was I was I took inventory of, you know, kind of where I thought this could apply. And when I had, when I'd actually gone to interview at eCount, uh, I was a product manager. I had made a list of, uh, I think, nine or 10 products that uh, didn't exist that I thought we could build, like create. And, and a clinical research product was number nine on my list. Um, and I have that, actually, I have that note, note page framed now in my office. And so, you know, I think I also, I think the way that my brain worked in this way wasn't so much, I think oftentimes people will ask me or, or might ask me, you know, 
what was the analysis that you did in order to identify clinical research as an opportunity? And they're really giving me way too much credit, like academic credit. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, we didn't, we didn't go through that type of process at all. You know, I think I wanted to start a business, clinical research like popped to mind. And then we did enough research to find out that no one had ever done it before. No one, there was not a product. And I think that was one of the requirements that, that, that I had was, was to be the first somewhere. And I, I thought that that would be more compelling because it seemed to me that like building a better mousetrap would be kind of a, a pain. And for some reason, I thought that that was like less interesting. Mm. Um, and in some ways that may actually have been a lot easier, but, but I didn't know that at the time. And so at that point, you know, we had, you know, me and my, my friend and my, my wife, we were, we had the desire to, to start something and we had identified an industry. No one else had done it. And as far as I was concerned, that was enough to, to, you know, kind of make the commitment and, and, and move forward. Years later, I'd seen a, um, I'd read an article that, that compared the way that entrepreneurs think and, and the way that like, you know, maybe the typical MBA graduate thinks and I, they, they compared it to um to chefs um or, or um, different types of chefs and and i think that the way the article was describing entrepreneurs was was somebody who who kind of walks into a kitchen and takes inventory of the ingredients that exist in the cabinets and then figures out what they can cook with the with those ingredients where and they, they describe the mba graduate as, as somebody who finds a recipe and then goes to the store and, and gets the ingredients and I, I think that our our journey or process to, you know, essentially starting uh, that first business was very much a process and like kind of opening up the shelves and seeing what we what we had to work with and then figuring out something. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Uh, that's often how I cook, <laughs> which is like, or at least how I shop. Go to the store, see what looks good, and then you come home and make sense of it for sure. So that kind of like mental agility to work with the what you have, and then couple that with with some notion that clinical research was a was a um, a market that needed help. You know, sometimes that can be very they don't they don't align, right? This market needs help to do it right, responsibly. You need A, B, and C. Go to the cabinet. Oh gosh, I only have B, C, and D. So, what were right. some early holes you saw, and how did you fill them? Well. You know, I think that uh, you know, years later, after after I graduated, maybe even years later after we had started Greenfire, I think that JP and I would have told you that we thought that the 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 most critical skill to have if you were going to start a tech company or 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 at least for be a successful entrepreneur would be problem solving. And I think that actually this is you know linking this back to you know the otherwise kind of useless philosophy degree. I think that this actually was is where the benefit of, of that type of um, study kind of came in. And, and we, we ended up being really good for the most part, not perfect, but um, we, were, we were pretty good at, at solving problems. And those were problems that we, we tended to encounter, I don't know, sometimes daily, if not weekly. Uh, and they came in all forms, shapes and sizes, whether they were you know vendors, employees, regulatory, clients, investors, whatever. They, they were basically just you know, kind of being shot at us from all angles. I'm trying to think of, you know, I think that there's a tremendous amount of like, I don't know, I guess like, to use your word agility that's required in order to be successful, you know, and there's there's definitely like some component of luck that's involved too. You know, I think that the way that we started this business uh, could have failed wildly and quickly if 
the industry that we had chosen was just completely shut down to to the idea right and we and we kind of like force fed the industry in the early days this idea you know it was um uh, i think one of our earliest investors when we first presented like the investor deck to him he said this isn't a problem no one ever nobody ever brings up patient payments and this isn't an issue this isn't going to work you know and i and my point of view is you know just because you don't hear about it or, or people aren't yeah i think that people aren't complaining about the status quo because they don't know of anything better and i would have told him at the time that you know if i had presented a horseless carriage to somebody they would tell me that horses work just fine like i don't need something like that right right and you know and then fast forward you know a decade or two everybody's you know driving cars and or you know call it the difference between email and and snail mail too i mean i think you know it, it was it was more of a better opportunity uh, to to operate in a more efficient way but man there was a million million ways you know i think that actually i think it might have been you early on that that i was talking to and you you, you told me that we needed a we needed to have a um, a fully built out quality management system <laughs> and i you know you probably maybe maybe you realize this maybe you didn't but i you know i i you know kind of nodded and agreed with you and then you know i was like googling quality management system <laughs> like what what in the world is that and then i said to jp i was like how in the world are we going to build this like i don't know anything about this so yeah. you know we went out and hired you know found somebody hired somebody to do it and uh, it worked but oh geez you're like yeah. i think you're like uh triggering all my past trauma right now <laughs> i'm like i'm trying to pull out like all, all the ways that you know all the the, the gaps and holes that we, we tried to fill there's a million of them yeah i i aim to please i, I think I, <laughs> I recall another discussion we had which was like how can we measure this problem and i think there was a really easy way you were able to do that which was like hey why don't you just pull a couple of sites and see how long does it actually take them to do it the current way which is a some petty cash or paper check process. And I think you discovered, uh, I don't know if you remember the figures, I remember some of them, I think. You discovered like, wow, when you actually count all that up over the number of patients, the number of studies, like it was many hours of wasted time doing these things manually. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. And and you're right that it, that it is. I mean, I think that there are like superficial pain pains that that people suffer on a day-to-day basis that i think are really easy to point to and then there are um you know call it like these these more subtle or indirect you know inefficiencies that kind of that that kind of exist that were i think that oftentimes people are not like cognizant of um and i think that this was probably a good example of, of one where where there's many steps many uh many manual steps many painful you know kind of bureaucratic pieces of a of a process that um, in aggregate, where it was costly to universities or research sites, and of course had a had kind of a negative uh, user experience from the from the, the, the participants' perspective. But no, you know, I'm not sure that that anybody had ever quantified it um, or or tried to solve it. And I think that even when we would, um, th- th- there were certainly some people that we would present that that you know kind of problem and solution to, and they, they, it would resonate with them, and, and others just wouldn't believe it or, or wouldn't believe that it was a, an yeah. issue. And I guess that that's true with with all you know kind of innovation, uh, especially in in the clinical research space. You know, it, yeah. it's kind of what I what I would expect if if anybody were to enter into this space and and you know and ask me what what's what's to come for them. But you know, the other smart thing you you did in the early days was you know you really focused on the sites as the end user, even if they weren't the buyers. Although sometimes they were the buyers, as I understood it. 
but you were you focused on really whose problem you were solving and making sure that that experience was delightful versus just trying to sell the buyer on some ROI metrics that were you know half baked or whatnot. And then uh, you, you kind of met in the middle there where you could say, okay, we do have a site approach to to have them adopt the 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 technology and as well as a, a sponsor approach. T- tell us like how you came to that two pronged approach, which is not something many companies really do in this yeah this was i think this the way that we approached developing our product back then and 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 the way that i would still do it now i think is unique and and how did we do that i think that was you know maybe that was just um you know kind of that was like a moment of our own brilliance in a way and 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 maybe it was luck but it certainly wasn't like thoughtful decision making (laughs) You know, uh, but but the way that we thought about it seemed, and we were, you know, we were outsiders coming into a space, right? So we didn't know how it had always been done, which I feel like is like oftentimes like the 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 the, the most shameful rate limiter of of this industry. And so the way that I thought about it at the time was, you know, okay, like the sponsor is going to be paying for this technology, but if if the site and and especially the patient, we actually would think about it completely backwards in, in this way where. Um, I think that I would prioritize the patient as the most primary end user, the site as the most important, call it like business user of the system. And in most cases, neither one of them would actually be you know, paying for the tech. And then the sponsor from a product design perspective ends up being like the, the uh, like tertiary importance, um, despite the fact that they are going to be paying, you know, kind of the big bills. Although from from my perspective, I mean, tactically, I was thinking, Hey, if the site and the patient don't like using this, then eventually the sponsor won't use this either, right? So it was very like selfish in this way because I wanted the the business to do well and and and, and grow and, and continue on. But actually, like as I've you know, I think that the the product evolution at, at Greenfire when I was there, and 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 even the, the other companies that I started afterwards, kind of reflect my evolution as a product person uh, over the years. And now the way that I would probably frame that up is, is is similar in the sense that I would still prioritize the patient and then the site and then the sponsor or, or maybe the CRO if the CRO was part of your your kind of commercial dynamic. But I think that ultimately it wouldn't it, it, you'd be prioritizing the patient and the site from like a user experience perspective, but by delighting the the the, the users the the patients and the site, you're actually creating more value for your customer. And, and so in that way, prioritizing the patient in the site is actually prioritizing your customer. So, so it's not so much um, backwards or, or a conflict uh, like I might've described it in, in the past. I think it's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And I, and I think that there are more companies that are trending towards this, this kind of you know, philosophy, uh, although more than there were you know, 10 years ago. But I still think that especially I think oftentimes like the larger clinical tech businesses in this space still tend to be you know, very like client focused and, and customer focused. And, and I think that that, that may be a mistake in, you know, in some ways. Yeah, I, I think you definitely see a lot of these startups more interested in raising money than actually focusing on the end products, very different from you know how you would how you would behaved, and then not quite as bad, but not still still off the mark is focusing too much on the sponsor or the the ultimate the the buyer versus the end user, whether that's the patient or the clinician uh, or folks who are executing the business of of research. 
So let's, you know, let's fast forward. You grew the company over how many years? How, how long did it take you before um, there was a successful exit for you? Well, we had, we had a couple of exits along the way. There was three in total. And so we started it in, you know, kind of late 2007, early 2008. The first exit that we had was in 2000, and I think it was 2011, which was really just a secondary offering. Uh, so we, the founders sold some stock uh, to the, the venture capital firm that was, that we were partnered with. And that was, um, you know, relatively small, um, but really, really meaningful, uh, moment in our, in our lives. And then many years later, many meaning three, uh, but in <laughs> startup, in startup world, that's a long time. Totally. We did a, um, we did a recap with a private equity firm and, and the founders and some of the other, uh, most of the other, uh, early investors, had sold most of their their ownership to this private equity firm, and then stayed stayed along for the rest for the ride. And then I left the business in 2016, early 2016, and the the management team grew it from there. And then the final exit happened, or final exit as far as I was concerned happened in July of 2021. Uh, so that was what 13 years, 13 yeah. years from start to finish. You know, which is like I think if you were to like take a look at other other companies that that have kind of gone from zero to something um, in this space. I think a decade is probably like a good estimate. I think Greenfire probably took a little bit longer because we were the first, we, we kind of defined a product category. And I think that those first couple of years uh, likely moved a little bit slower than if if you were, you know, kind of building a better mousetrap and, you know, and, and the, the industry kind of understood and was on board with the product that you were bringing to market. But we don't i don't i don't believe that this space will uh, accommodate like a uh, like a hyper growth business uh, mm -hmm. which i think is like a really interesting dynamic and you know and I sp especially when you think about all of the companies that exist in in this space today that have raised massive amounts of money you know and i think that there's 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 kind of like a, i think that oftentimes raising a ton of money is a mistake because of the fact that it's very difficult to maybe even impossible, uh, I won't say impossible for sure, but unlikely um, to get like a, a very, you know, kind of typical type of exponential, you know, call it top line growth curve, like you might find in, you know, maybe a more generalist, you know, kind of tech space that was cross vertical and had, you know, exponential adoption. Uh, across its customer base. But in any event, yeah, 10 years. I think that that's a good estimate. If you want to start a business in clinical trials, don't expect to exit, you know, fully before decades up. And there's obviously going to be exceptions to that. And, you know, people listen to this and say, you know, I'm wrong. You know, what about so-and-so? And like, you know, I admit there, there are, there is always exceptions, but I think that that's a general, general rule I would I'd go by. Yeah, I think it's prudent to to say that. And actually, we've seen evidence of recent companies who've had you know multiple giant multiples go public. And I don't know what their stock is, but I'm pretty sure it didn't go up from there, right? So they've they've gone down um, without naming names. Uh, and then there are other companies we've all seen where the the investments are huge, and you know people are still waiting for some evidence. And I think what you did very prudently was make sure you grew the company in the right way. Where you didn't take on too much of an investment. And actually, I you know that's some advice you you've given to me as well as my, you know my first role here as a, as a startup, and we take that to heart for sure. Yeah, and I think that we we actually took on probably 
we, we probably should have taken on more investment if I had to go back in a time machine, you know, so we, we were really, uh, we were really sensitive about dilution. Um, and we, we didn't want to take on too much, but there's a trade off, right. And, and it probably ended up leading to like a burnout, uh, essentially, especially for me and JP, uh, you know, I think Jennifer has like kind of infinite energy, so she doesn't, <laughs> that's probably not like something that she would ever experience, but as well, you know, do, right? you know, if we had, <laughs> Yeah. So I think that, you know, I think that there's, you know, every company is different, but, you know, I would say don't raise too little, but don't raise too much. And that yep. is, you know, probably the biggest piece of advice you could possibly get. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's just something sort of sexy about raising a bunch, but you just get yourself into trouble, I think. So let's talk about, you know, what happened. You know, people can read the press releases about your exit and whatnot, but uh, you took some time off, right? What did you do over, over the last couple of years during COVID? Well, no, I, I have been, um, you know, after I left Greenfire, I really needed uh, time to essentially recover uh, from the entire experience. And so I, I've done a bunch of different things. I wouldn't say any of them were, were really passions per se, but, you know, I worked at uh, Bracket for a little while. I started another company that, that failed and, you know, you win some, you lose some, but we, we designed that, that business to, um, to test it um, and, and the test failed and, and then we, we wrapped it up. Surely, you know, that we, we were meant to launch that business in June of 2020, started building that about nine months prior. Um, and then COVID uh, certainly wasn't helpful uh, in, in that experience. But, you know, I won't blame it all on COVID. And then, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time with my kids. Um, I, I actually really, uh, you know, I, I am not the type of person or entrepreneur that, you know, finishes one company and then has to run out and, and and start another one, you know, three weeks later. Um, and, and there's lots of people that I have met that would describe themselves in that way. And they would say, I, you know, I can't just sit at home. I can't do anything uh, but work. And I don't fall into that category. I'm, I'm more than happy to, to not be yeah. working around the clock. Um, and I love spending time with the kids. And so I was kind of like a stay at home dad for a long while. And then I ran a whole lot. Um, and we, so we moved to Puerto Rico in, in, um, November of 2020, uh, in the middle, kind of in the middle of COVID. And we lived there for two years. And that was an awesome experience. Uh, I ran a whole lot there. Um, I ended up, I ran a 100 mile ultra marathon in uh, October of 2021. Um, You're crazy. I went, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was super fun. Really, it was, really was. It was, um, you know, I think that those types of things are, are like semi spiritual. For sure. And, and it's awesome. Uh, I would encourage everybody to do that. Uh, after you took a break from from life, which I think is fantastic, right? People proudly call themselves like I'm a serial entrepreneur, and like, come on, dude, just just relax for a little bit. But you're back, right? I see you have this this T-shirt, Mural Health. What is going on? Tell us about this. We made a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think my my attitude is um, was basically, it, or always has, or kind of has been that, like, you know, if like the universe wants me to to do something, you know, it'll present present itself like i don't have to force it like you know there's lots of time and let's see what happens and so it was a little over a year ago that a guy i knew who who was familiar with um clinical technology he was an investor he, he kind of approached me and asked me um if i would start a new business uh, with him and the idea was i had this idea kind of reflecting on my time at Greenfire and, and kind of thinking about what would i do you know, what would I do differently? Or if I, if I was, if I had still been working there, how would I, how would I like map out the next five or 10 years for that business? 
and so I, I, I'd kind of laid that out for him and, and, and that was maybe six months prior to this phone call. And, and he, he called me up and, and, and said that he had been thinking about the kind of the vision and the, and the strategy that I had, had laid out and he, he wanted to do it. Uh, he wanted to start, start a company and, and chase after that, that product strategy. And he asked me to, to start it with him. And I told him, no, I told him I didn't want to, cause it sounded like a lot of work. Uh, it was, <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I think eventually I, I kind of like, you know, I, I, but I told him I, that I'd be happy to support him and I would, and I would uh, help him out uh, with it. And and that, you know, helping him out ended up, you know, kind of evolving uh, over the course of the next couple of months. And, um, and here I am, I'm a co-founder of this company uh, that we've started that we're uh, about to launch called Mural Health. And we are, um, you know, I will generally call this a, you know, and, and this, this terminology might change over time, but right now I'm thinking of this as like a patient management platform. And so I think that the bigger vision for this technology is to um, essentially try to manage all of the touch points between a patient and a clinical trial. Uh, obviously, we can't do that on day one. And so we are focusing in on four, what, what I'm thinking of as feature sets, which are essentially modules that sit inside of this platform that help will help the patient. Um, and I think like what, what you'll see when we, when we become public with some of our materials is that, you know, the, the, the kind of the call it the tagline or, or like the, the stated mission of this business is to make it easier to be a participant in clinical trials. Um, and this is like very much, you know, embracing this like participant first, you know, product mentality with the idea that if we can make it um, easy or easier to be a participant and, and, I, and I'm going to like, I'm going to, stay away from calling them patients just simply because I want to be able to, I want to like give, I want to, I want to give credit to the caregivers as much, as much so as, as any, anybody that actually has a, uh, an, an illness um, in, in the, in the event that they are sick. But cause I think that the care, the caregivers in our system are actually, there's this concept of caregiver that is, that is just as important, if not uh, maybe even slightly more important than a patient or, or subject, I guess. I don't like that word either, but so in any event, we're, we're going to launch this business with um, uh, what I'm thinking of as like four feature sets that are all meant to uh, help the patient or the, the caregiver um, participate. The one that's probably going to be the most controversial in a way is that we are launching the business with a next generation patient payment solution, uh, which will compete with the ClinCard, which is the product that I originally built and developed out uh, during my time at, at Greenfire. And, um, you know, I think from my perspective, there you know, the, the clean card was this awesome entry point into this space and it defined a product category. Uh, and back in 2008, it was uh, by far probably the best tech uh, available in my, in my, you know, kitchen cabinet to, to deliver fast payment to, to patients and I guess caregivers too, uh, although we weren't really considering them back then. But if you fast forward to current day, um, there are a lot of opportunities to upgrade the existing um, products set. And so that, that includes ClinCard. And I, I focus a lot on them because they're the market leader. But there's a handful of other competitors uh, that exist in this space who, who essentially had um, replicated or attempted to replicate the ClinCard product. So I think they, they all kind of fall into the same category of, of these like prepaid debit card payment right. delivery uh, mechanisms. And, you know, and so we're, we're going to do a bunch of different things to improve that experience. And then we are also going to uh, include um, transportation features uh, inside of um, our mobile app. So our, our proprietary 
mobile application will be the the, the kind of primary way that a, a participant interacts with our system. And I think that that is a unique uh, unique feature for any patient facing um, tech that I've that I've seen out there. Transportation isn't so much a, a uniquely compelling feature set, but I think it's important to include. And then we're also going to have a kind of a robust communication feature set uh, where we're not only de- going to be delivering um, like one-way reminders, which I think is like you know kind of standard, um, but we're also going to give the the participants the ability to interact with the site in a two-way uh, communication inside of the mobile application. And so, if you if you're familiar with this company called Spruce Health, uh, it, it's it was, I think our feature the communication feature set inside of our inside of our product I think was essentially inspired by my experience using Spruce with my with my uh, my my doctor in Puerto Rico. Um, it was just a it was like a, just a very easy experience where I can open up my app, send a message, and it could have been you know could you schedule me for an eye doctor's appointment or I fell off my um, my one wheel when in Puerto Rico and I like kind of cracked my head open and I mm-hmm. I opened up my app and. And I asked, this was in the middle of COVID. And I said, you know, how can I get stitches? You know, I, I don't want to go to the emergency room, you know, and they responded right away and said, just come on into the, you know, come into the office and we'll, we'll fix you up. And and so it wasn't like this, this communication feature set wasn't like this, like, you know, kind of like amazing tech. It was just simple and it worked mm-hmm. really well. Um, and we wanted to give the same experience to participants in, in, in research. And then the fourth Feature set in in kind of the M, we'll call it the MVP um, minimally viable product is, is typically if you're um, if you're operating efficiently as a tech startup you want to put out you know kind of what you need to in order to test it and, and then iterate the fourth feature set is um, what I'm calling like patient analytics or patient insights I'm not sure where where we're landing on a name just yet but um, we're going to um, periodically sim- you know simply ask the patient how they're doing. You know what? What's their experience in the study? And this is during during their their stu- during their participation in the study. And we're going to give them the ability to provide feedback to the to the study. Um, and this can be to the site, but we'll also be able to roll this up so that the the, the study teams are going to be able to have visibility into uh, patient satisfaction in a, on a real time basis uh, across their their study. And I think the longer term goal of of this feature set isn't just to provide you know, essentially reporting, but also to build up a data set that will allow us to predict who will drop out uh, or who is most likely to drop out based on data they provide or, or feedback they provide. And, and you know, some of those people will be people that are going to drop out and we can't do anything about that. But there will also be some subset of patients or, or caregivers that we'll be able to identify and then hopefully proactively improve their experience so that they don't drop out and that they stay with the with the study and, and we can re- like kind of proactively retain them. And I'm not aware of any other product that does this yet. And so I think th- these are the four feature sets that we have. I mean, I think that we're we're attempting to to kind of improve upon what I had built years ago and then not only give the the industry a better way of uh, paying patients and caregivers, but then using that payment as a essentially a a point of leverage in order to deliver other more compelling uh, features to the patient in order to ultimately kind of bolster the the value that we can add to the study and and ultimately the the sponsor. And then I completely skipped over and didn't mention the site and all of that. The the goal is also to to make all of those like kind of tactical feature sets 
easier for the site to use as well. Yeah. Well, Sam, that, that's my yeah, that's like my commercial for the mural <laughs> health. Listen, it's great to have you back in the industry. I look forward to running into you at shows and hopefully presenting things on stage, maybe even partnering. I think our companies have a lot to offer each other as well. Uh, we'll do that offline, of course. But listen, thanks again for coming on on the show. I think you've enlightened a lot of people what it takes to really get a startup off the ground in this industry of clinical research. It's not easy, um, but certainly if you focus on the the end user, first and foremost, you're you're more likely to have some luck and success. Yeah, well, we'll see. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, welcome back. It's great to have you. Have an awesome day. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for tuning in to Research Confidential. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more information about us, show notes, transcripts, and resources, please visit proofpilot.com. If you'd like to debunk a clinical research myth, share some war stories, or maybe just show our audience what kind of heroics it takes to pull off gold standard research, send us your thoughts, episode ideas, and more to help at proofpilot.com. This show was presented by Proofpilot and is powered by Outcomes Rocket.